This morning's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 38. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at that fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Let's go to Jesus now. Lord, we come before you, we bow in your presence because you are the great King of kings and you are the Lord of lords. In days gone by, you predicted what would come and in this particular day, Lord, so much of it has been fulfilled and you are seated at the right hand of your Father from where you rule over all nations and from where you rule over all history and from where you are praised and prized and will be praised and prized forever and ever and ever. And I pray that you would draw near to your people now by the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would minister into our lives. I pray that you would make your words come alive I pray that you would fill our minds with truth and our hearts with hope. I pray that you would give us a greater resolve to live for the glory of your name today, and I thank you for what you will do, Lord. I thank you for revealing yourself to us. I thank you for forgiving our sin today. I thank you for inspiring us to follow you, to live our lives for the glory of Christ. I thank you for the fruit that will come from the singing of your word and the preaching of your word. For it is in your name that we pray and it is for your glory that I preach now in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Christian, oh Christian, may you have ears to hear the words of your Savior. Your redemption is drawing near. If we will have ears to hear this word from the Lord, I believe that hope will rise in our hearts. 
I believe that joy will rise in our lives because Jesus' words are not mere words, beloved. Jesus' words are promises. What he says you can take to the bank. What he says is going to come to pass will come to pass, and he has promised us that our redemption is drawing near. May the Lord help us to hear and receive today and live our lives in light of the fact, in light of the destiny that is decreed for all believers. Last week, we journeyed with Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem and then into the temple complex, and we watched as he cleansed that place from illegitimate commercial enterprises. We watched as he taught the people from his heart and as they clung to his every word. We watched as he debated with religious leaders and confronted their idolatry, confronted their sinfulness, and out of the grace in his heart called them to a better way of life, a more faithful way of life. We listened to the words of Jesus that certainly pierced our own hearts if we listened well. When Jesus said, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Every word that falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. As I said last week with these words, Jesus left us with two choices, and there is not a third option. We either fall upon the grace of God in Christ, and and our lives are broken to pieces in such a way that he can rebuild us into his image, or secondly, If we refuse the offer of his grace, if we refuse to fall upon his mercy, then the day will come when he will fall upon us and he will crush us beyond repair. There's only two choices. We fall upon Christ or he falls upon us. There's no third option. And how I do pray that we heard the word of the Lord, that it pierced our souls, and that we heard the grace in his heart that would say, come, fall upon me. I will rebuild your life for my glory. Proverbs 29.1 says, the one who is often reproved and yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. And Jesus, beloved, wants better things for us. These words are definitely intended. They were in the day that Jesus spoke them. They were intended for unbelievers who were actually, at that very moment, plotting to kill Jesus. He was calling them away from murderous plots into faithful, submissive, dependent living on this one who was God in the flesh. And so certainly these words are directed at unbelievers, but I believe that these words are directed at believers as well. Because our God is a consuming fire and he loves us enough that he will discipline us. And at times he will even discipline us severely because he wants us to be like Jesus Christ. And in order for us to be formed into his image, he must confront the parts of our life that are not like him. So may we hear the words of the Lord. Either we fall upon Christ or he will fall upon us. This brings us now to the beginning of chapter 21 where we're picking up today. And here we see that Jesus is still in the temple complex And Luke tells us the story of a day when Christ was watching as people were bringing up their offerings. So in that day, there would have been an offering box, and people would line up and put their offerings in a a box. And Christ was standing or sitting wherever he was, and he was just observing. And as he watched, he noticed that rich people were coming and putting their gifts in the treasury. No particular problem with that. But then next in line came this old widow. 
and somehow or other Jesus knew her state of life and he watched as she put into the offering box only two small copper coins, which is our equivalent to maybe putting a few quarters in the offering plate. Christ was so amazed by this, he was so touched by this, that he actually got his disciples' attention and said, guys, did you see that? Did you see what you just saw? Did you watch as the rich people were coming and giving so much money? Did you watch as this poor widow came and put in two copper coins? I tell you the truth, she gave everything that she had. The rich gave out of the abundance of their riches, but this woman trusts in the Lord so much that she took the only small provision she had, gave it away to God and said, God, I trust you more than my money. Jesus, I think, was drawing our attention to this woman's faith. The issue is not mainly money here. If you were here last week, you'll remember when we we watched as there were certain people in the temple complex who used the whole religious system there as a scheme to make money. Jesus was not pleased with this. You remember? He went through the temple and he cleansed the temple of all the people who were using the name of God to make money. He was outraged at this. Now he sees a woman who's in that very temple and instead of trying to use people to get things, she's giving her things up to God because she trusts. The Lord is trying to draw our attention to her faith. It's not about the amount of money. Rich people can give with great faith too. In fact, I have known some very wealthy people who gave out of an enormity of faith. I'm just thinking right now of the man who founded the Caterpillar Company. He got to a place where he reversed the whole tithing situation. You know, normally we try to give 10% of our money to the Lord and we spend 90% for the needs of our lives or whatever. This man decided to reverse it and he became very wealthy. He gave away 90% of his money. Month by month, year by year, and he kept 10% for himself because he's a man who was living by faith. He wasn't interested in becoming the biggest, the richest, the strongest, whatever. The Lord is not saying to us that the poor are better than the rich. He's trying to draw our attention to faith. When all you have is a few bucks in the bank and you don't have food in the refrigerator and you give up your few bucks to God and say, Lord, I don't trust in this money, I trust in you, then you are living by faith and you're proving that with your actions. Jesus is impressed with faith. This is what draws his attention. And I don't think that the issue of faith is is passed off the scene when this story passes away and you'll see right around in verse five, I think it is. Yes, in verse five, the story now changes. This whole scene kind of died down. I I imagine in my mind there was a a lull in the conversation and, and into the stillness people began to speak and the people that were with Jesus began to notice the beauty of the, the temple that was there and how it was adorned and how it was decorated and they were impressed with it. They were amazed with it. If any of you have been to Europe and seen some of the beautiful cathedrals there, I've seen some of them in France and in Italy and in Greece, and and they are pretty impressive. For me personally, I think architecture is my favorite kind of art, so I'm moved by buildings. I really enjoy staring at them, studying them, all that stuff. I can relate to the feeling that was in people's hearts, and they began to comment on the building, and Jesus, being a wise teacher, took this as an opportunity to point his disciples' attention in a different direction and to tell them about future things that were to come. He was trying to tell them to live by faith and not by sight, 
He was trying to tell them, don't be impressed with earthly things because earthly things are fading away and the day will come like a thief in the night when it will all be gone. And if you hope in these things, your hope will be gone. If you hope in greater things, your hope will live. Still, I think the, the, the discussion in the rest of chapter 21 is mainly about living by faith. So Christ takes this time and he tells them a number of things that are to come. To, and this is what we're going to talk about today. It's going to lead us into the middle of chapter 22. And rather than trying to go word by word and verse by verse and address everything Jesus said, which would just take too much time for the day, I just want to address three questions broadly about this section of Luke. And the questions are these. What did Jesus say was going to take place? What did Jesus promise to the people who believe in him, who cling to him, who hope in him? And number three, what kind of life did Jesus say that we should live in light of what he saw? So what did he say? What did he promise? What kind of life did he say that we should live? Question number one. Jesus commented in two broad categories on the future. The first has to do with Jerusalem. The rest has to do with the broader history of humanity. You can see... uh, when you look at what Jesus says, that mainly what he said is that Jerusalem and the temple itself were going to be completely destroyed. To use his words, they were going to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. His comments about Jerusalem come in two sections. So you'll have to look at your Bibles now. And if you look at verses 5 through 9, you'll see that that's the first part of his comments about Jerusalem. And then in verses 20 through 24, That's the second part of his comments about Jerusalem. So there are two things going on here, Jerusalem and the broader world, and in two places Christ talks about Jerusalem. So in the first part, verses five through nine, Jesus focuses on the temple because the discussion is focused on the temple. And he says, don't be amazed with all these things that you see because one day not a single stone will be left upon another. The things that are so beautiful in your sight and so impressive to your eyes are going to dissolve They're going to be gone. And as I said a minute ago, if you put your hope in the things that you can see, your hope will die when those things fade away. And so Christ was saying, don't do that. I'm sure he could understand this sense of impress that was in the human heart. You know, God was the one who gave the design for the temple. God is the ultimate architect. I think God loves architecture. But he knew the situation. Don't put your hope in this building. Don't do it. And he helpfully told his disciples, that listen, when, when the end of this temple begins to draw near, lots of folks are going to rise up and say, I am the Christ, I am the Savior, I am the hope of the world. Do not follow them, do not believe in them. And beloved, this was a word Jesus was speaking, I think, to people in the first century, but I think it's a word that continues to exist to this day. Just a few uh, months ago, I watched a, a story on 60 Minutes all about a guy who's claiming to be the Messiah, and he's persuaded about 100 people to move into some mountainous area somewhere out west and follow him. If you hear someone rising up and saying they're the Christ, don't believe it. Don't believe it. The Christ has come, and the Christ is Jesus. The second part of Jesus' comments, he broadens out from the temple and he now begins talking about Jerusalem as a whole. This is in verses 20 through 24. There he says that the entire city will be destroyed and this did in fact come to pass 35, 40 years after Jesus Christ died. He said to his disciples that listen, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, that's your signal to get the heck out of Dodge because it's not gonna go well. 
You can get on your knees, you can fast, you can pray. God will not deliver the city. Jerusalem will be destroyed. When you see the armies coming, get out and encourage everybody you can to stay away. The heart of Jerusalem is like a magnet to the hearts of people. People to this day want to go to Jerusalem. Jesus is saying, when you see the armies, get out. Turn the magnet off. Go the other way. Run as fast as you can. Things are not going to go well. Some of you have heard about the works of, a, of, of an ancient Jewish scholar named Josephus. He wrote a, a big, thick book. And since I've got several religion degrees, I probably should have read the thing by now, but it's a little hard to get through, so I haven't done it. But the part about the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, I've read every word. It's maybe 100, 120 pages long. Josephus was an eyewitness to the destruction of this city, and it is just a gripping thing to listen to him tell about the horror, the terror that overtook Jerusalem in the days when it was destroyed. Unbelievable. Christ in his grace is telling people, if you will have faith to hear me, when you see the army surrounding the city, get out. You do not want to be there. He told them, many of you will be devoured by the sword. Others of you will be led into exile and you'll be scattered among now, he said, all the nations. That's very important. Some of you who know your Bibles well will know that in the past, Israel was led into exile, right? They had originally come into the promised land. They were there for a while, but they were so unfaithful to God that after about, well, 200 years in one case and 400 years in another case, God sent them punishers to punish them for centuries of sin, and he removed them from the land. They went to Assyria first, and then they went to Babylon second. Both times they, they came back to the land. In about 515, 517 BC, Israel resettled the, the place that we now know as Israel, and they were there until past the times of Jesus. So now five, six hundred years had passed. The people of Israel are still there, and Jesus is saying, listen, you're going into exile again. But now you Jewish people will not be scattered to one place. You will be scattered all over the place. And here we sit 2,000 years later, and we must admit and testify to the fact that Jesus was right. Some Jews have returned to Israel. Most Jews have not. The Jewish people are scattered around this planet. Jesus said it was going to happen three, four decades before, he actually, before it actually came to pass. If you'll look at verses 9 and verses 24 you'll begin to see that Jesus, in making comments about the temple and about Jerusalem, also broadens his comments out to the greater world. So and, and in verses 9 and 24, in my view, build a bridge from Jerusalem to the broader world. So look at verse 9 first. Jesus tells us there in that verse that the end will not be at once. So here's how I'm thinking about that. He's talking to his disciples in the temple. They've asked him questions about the temple. He's telling them that the temple's going to be destroyed, that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. But then it's like he claps his hands, tries to get their attention, and says, listen, this will be the end of Jerusalem, but it will not be the end of the whole world because the end of the entire movement of humanity will not come at once. The destruction of Jerusalem will happen in a short period of time. The destruction of the order of this world is going to happen over a long period of time. The end will not come at once. The end is going to come and come and come and come until the day when Jesus finally comes. So if you ask yourself the question, are we living in the last days, the answer to that question is yes, absolutely we are. 
and they were living in the last days when Jesus spoke these words. The last days are the days between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. The comments now that we're going to see him make about the condition of the world are his description of what we should expect between his first coming and his second coming. Verse 9 is the first bridge. Look then at verse 24. There, Jesus says that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. And then here's the key phrase. Until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Now what does that mean? Please keep a finger here in Luke because we're going to come back here. But now turn with me to Romans chapter 11. I'm going to draw our attention to the end of that chapter because I think Paul says some things that will help us understand what Jesus is saying. Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. Here's what Paul writes. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, and here's the key phrase, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will, be ban- he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take their sins away. As regards the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God you Gentiles, that is, but now you have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now there's a lot in that text. There's a lot that needs to be said. Sermons, plural, could be preached just about that paragraph. I don't want to get into all the details. What I want to draw our attention to from that text is simply to say this. When Jesus spoke about the time of the Gentiles being fulfilled, what I think he means is the time that God has allotted for Gentiles to come to faith in Christ. There is only a set amount of time, beloved, for the nations to believe in Jesus. And when that curtain closes, the curtain will close on this age, and it will come to an end. So when Jesus says that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, I think he means that that will be the condition of Jerusalem until all the Gentiles that are destined to come to Christ will come to Christ. And when that happens, when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, then the end will come indeed. So even while Jesus is commenting on the, on the future of the temple and on Jerusalem, what I'm trying to help us see now is he's building bridges to talk about the greater history of the world, and this has direct impact on us. Now the things that he says in these couple sections, verses 10 through 19, verses 25 through 28, these things paint a picture that relates to us. And again, rather than trying to deal with every single detail, I just want to paint for you the picture in, in broad strokes that Jesus painted for us. He said, here's the world you should expect to live in until I come back. Four things. Number one, Jesus promised us that there will be wars on the earth. Kingdoms will rise up against kingdoms. Nations will rise up against nations. As long as there is sinfulness in the heart, as long as there is brokenness in the heart, there will be division among people. 
And as long as there is division among people and those, those people have power in their hands, there will be wars among nations. The spirit of division, the spirit of war will reign upon the earth until Jesus returns. That's what he's saying. Just like the days of, Mo- of Noah, before the flood, the earth will be filled with violence because the human heart will be in rebellion against God. So when we see groups like ISIS rising up, we should not be shocked. We should not be surprised. We should not be too discouraged. We should know that this is what Jesus said would happen. Kingdoms will rise against kingdoms. Nations will rise against nations. Division will rule upon the earth. And intentional inflicting of death and violence will reign in our age. We should expect this. Second, Jesus says that there'll be natural disasters in the earth, including earthquakes, famines, and pestilences. So we shouldn't be surprised when a Hurricane Katrina hits New Orleans, and we shouldn't say that New Orleans is any worse than any place in the world. Christ said natural disasters will stretch throughout the world. It's going to happen. This is part of the the brokenness of creation, the brokenness of humanity that's being displayed because of the brokenness of our relationship with God. We should not be surprised when we hear of people starving for lack of food. We should not be surprised when epidemics break out like the Ebola virus. We should be saddened, we should be compassionate, but we should not be surprised. These things have been decreed, beloved. This is the fruit of brokenness between God and humanity. This is what it looks like when we walk away from the gracious, loving will and ways of God, and it will be this way until the day Jesus returns. Third, Jesus says that there'll be terrors and great signs from heaven, which in this case certainly means the sky. And I don't know what that all means, to be honest with you. I've read some commentaries, I've done some thinking and studying myself. I don't completely understand what it means, but what I do know is that in some way or other, great things will happen, I think, from the skies, in the heavens, that we know that no human being could manufacture, things that will tell us that God is on the march and that evil is on the march and that there is a great war in the earth that has to be won by somebody. If you look at verse 26, Jesus said that the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And to me, that phrase becomes a key to understanding what he means when he's talking about the signs from heaven. I think that there probably is some physical, literal element to that, but when I hear about the powers of the heavens being shaken, my mind goes to Ephesians chapter 6, where God talks about the spiritual powers in the heavenly places. And I think that mainly what Jesus is saying is that there is going to be a great shaking of Satan and his kingdom, and he's not going to be happy about it, and great violence, great, great evil is going to be unleashed upon the earth. We should expect these things. We should expect marvelous signs, fear-producing signs. It's going to happen, beloved. This will be the state of our existence until Jesus comes again and finally destroys Satan's kingdom completely. Fourth thing that Jesus says will happen is that there will be a great persecution of believers. Some of us, maybe even some of us in this very room right now, will appear before authorities, before people who have in their hand the power of temporal life and death. Some of us will be handed over to unbelievers in one way or another because we've been betrayed by family and friends. So this won't just be happening uh, from people that we don't know, but even people who are very close to us are gonna turn on us. 
Jesus said that in this time before he comes again, we'll have to taste the bitter fruit of persecution and we'll have to taste the bitter fruit of betrayal. And beloved, for some of our brothers and sisters in the world, this is no theoretical discussion, right? For us, we can talk theologically and theoretically about what it means to be persecuted for believing in Jesus Christ. But in India, just for one example right now, they can't think, talk, pray theoretically about these things. Several months ago in May when I was in India, a man rose to power. His, he goes by the name of Modi, M-O-D-I. He is a Hindu nationalist and he's got a violent reputation for what he has, how he has acted toward non-Hindus. Since he rose to power in the first hundred days of his reign in India, there have been no less than 600 reported cases of persecution breaking out against Christians. I read the story of one just about a week and a half ago. A hundred believers were gathered in a small room praying, calling upon the name of the Lord. And this was in southern India where the persecution isn't as rampant. So this wasn't up in the north. In the north of India, persecution is pretty commonplace. In the south, it's not so commonplace. So this happened in the south. hundred believers are gathered. The Hindus come to the, to the church where they're gathered. They light all their cars on fire. They threaten to kill everybody in the building. They do enter the building. They, they beat everybody up that's inside that building. Thank God, from what I understand, none of them died. But what I'm telling you is those brothers and sisters of ours, they cannot think about persecution in unliteral terms, right? This is their reality, and Jesus promised this to them. And what I want to say to you is I don't think that the time is far away where in this very land that kind of persecution is going to break out here. It would not surprise me if even physical violence begins to take place from non-Christians toward Christian people. It won't surprise me. Already we're seeing the vestiges of this. I talked with you a couple weeks ago about this group of pastors in Houston who stood up to, to take a stand for, for, for God's vision of marriage. And these brothers were put under a ton of pressure. It became a national story. Why? Because they said that God has willed that a man should marry a woman and a woman should marry a man. For that, their sermons were subpoenaed, right? Who knows what else the city would have done if the city could have gotten away with it. But I think that this for us is going to become less and less of a theoretical reality. And we're going to see that Jesus' prediction is going to come true on this soil. Paul said, 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus wants us to know that this is normal Christianity. Do not be surprised when you are persecuted by family, by friends, by powers, by, by whatever means. Do not be surprised. If you are living for Christ, you're going to take it from the world. Because as John said later, he said, the world hated him. It's no surprise then that the world is going to hate us. Believe it, beloved, this is the world in which we are going to live until Jesus Christ returns. This is the picture he wants us to see. I see him sort of managing our expectations He wants us to know what we ought to expect. Wars, natural disasters, signs from the heavens, and persecution. And Jesus presses very hard to let us know that these things are irreversible. They have been decreed. I want to draw your attention to three places. Look at verse 9. In verse 9, Jesus uses these words. For these things must first take place. They must take place. There's no discussion that's going to happen here. There's no more deliberation in heaven or on earth. These things have been decreed. Look at verse 22. 
For these are days of vengeance to what? To fulfill all that is written. One thing that ought to be very comforting to us about this is to know that God is completely in control of whatever chaos is breaking out on the earth. From God's point of view, chaos is not chaos. From God's point of view, the chaos that is the fruit of sin has been decreed. And what I want us to understand just as Christian people is we're looking at this world and wondering how we should respond to this world. One thing we need to know is that we will never reverse the decree of God. We will never cause war to cease. We will never cause famine to cease. We will never cause poverty to cease. We will never cause disease to cease strife to cease, persecution to cease. That is, a, that is a futile way of thinking about life on earth as believers. We should not expect that that will happen because these things have been decreed. It's right for us to have compassion toward the world. It's right for us when there are wars and famines and various kinds of brokenness to enter into the scene with the hope of Jesus Christ. One of the most compelling articles that I've read in Christianity today in a long time, I read probably two years ago now, it was a most fascinating story. They were showing how natural disasters in the earth or whatever, you know, maybe famines or whatever, and then the way that Christians would respond to them, they showed that the, that the places where the gospel was getting the most root in the world were the very places where natural disasters had happened. And what they were arguing in this article is, is, is basically saying, look and see, God is using tragedy to give the hope of the gospel. So we should absolutely be the most compassionate people on this planet, and in the face of tragedy, we should run to be the hands and feet and face of Christ. We should do that. But do not let yourself be deluded that these things are going to pass away, because the way I read the Bible is that until Jesus comes, this is going to be the way that life is going to be on the earth. Now, Given that kind of picture, given the kind of reality that Christ paints for us, what does he promise to those who believe? I will say quickly that for those who do not believe in Jesus, those who do not cling to him for hope and faith, the only thing that he promises to you is that the wrath of God is coming upon you. The rebellion of humanity against God is very serious he must address it. He must do something about it. And if we do not humble ourselves before him and repent, if we do not receive his means of salvation, we will pay the price for our sins. The stone of Christ, the cornerstone of Christ, will fall upon those who refuse to bow before him. That will happen. But for believers, I see that Jesus made three promises that to me are incredibly encouraging. Please look at verses 14 through 15. There Christ says that when we face persecution, we don't have to go into these great planning sessions about what we're going to say and about what we're going to do because he says that in the heat of the moment, he will give us the things that we need to say and he will give us the actions that we need to do. What I hear him saying is that you can live by faith in me. The battle that's happening on earth is the same battle that's happening between God and Satan in the heavenly places. And he is in total control of that battle, and if we will be submissive to him, he will give all the provision that we need for us. He will do that. Just thinking right now of a friend that I know of in India who was taken before authorities. He was questioned. He was threatened with persecution. And it just amazed me to hear him tell the story of how God brought into his mind in that moment the exact things to say and the right spirit to say it with. 
And God used his testimony to actually bring other people to Christ. In the heat of persecution, whether it's in your family, with your friends, with authorities, at work, wherever the context of your persecution is, beloved, live by faith because Christ will stand right there with you. Look at now at, at verses 18 through 19. Christ makes another promise. It's very important, especially those of us who travel to other parts of the world. Here, literally dying for our faith is, is probably not, not going to happen. Um, but in other parts of the world, it's commonplace. So if you're someone who travels around, this is something to pay attention to. Verses 18 through 19. Jesus said that if you cling to him, not a single head of your hair, hair of your head will perish. I don't think that he's promising you that if you cling to him, you will not die for your faith in him. I don't think he's promising that because in other places, he said that some will die for their faith. But I think what he's saying is that for those who cling to him, death will not be the final word. It will not be the final word. We will rise again with him in life. Later in December, one of our fighter verses says, this is John eleven twenty five. it says, uh, I am the the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Revelation chapter two, verse 10, Jesus said, be faithful to me all the way to death and I will give you the crown of life. Our brothers and sisters who even this very day are dying for the sake of Jesus will not finally die because Christ has made a promise. Not a hair of your head will perish. I think what he's saying is death will not have the final word for you. And I pray with all of my heart that we can live with that kind of hope in our lives. Finally, look at verses 27 through 28. Jesus says there that he's coming again in his glory and that he makes us this promise. And this is the main promise that I want our hearts to hang upon today. He said, your redemption is drawing near. Christian, Oh, Christian, may you have words to hear, ears to hear the words of your Savior. Your redemption is drawing near. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot and the temple destroyed. Your redemption is drawing near. There will be wars in the earth. Kingdoms will rise against kingdoms, nations against nations. Your redemption is drawing near. There will be natural disasters in the earth, earthquakes and famines and all kinds of epidemics. Your redemption is drawing near. There will be powerful signs from the heavens, things that will strike terror into your heart. Your redemption is drawing near. You will be persecuted for the sake of the name of Jesus, but worry not. Your redemption is drawing near. The redemption of Christ will be the final word in your life. So Christian, oh Christian, may you have ears to hear the words of your Savior, your redemption is drawing near. Oh, beloved, if we would only hear the words of Christ today, I think we would live with a kind of hope. We would form a kind of life that would live by joy in Jesus Christ. In some ways, it's good for us to get involved in all the details of the last times what scholars call eschatology. It's good for us to get into texts like Luke's chapter 21 and think about what's gonna happen, when's it gonna happen, how is it gonna happen. But mainly above and through and beyond all of that, I think what we really need to hear is this stunning, unbreakable promise coming from Jesus that says, in the midst of it all, your redemption is coming nearer day by day by day by day. No matter what things you have to suffer, 
Right now, the time is closer than it was yesterday to the day when you're going to look Jesus Christ face to face. Everything will be revealed. Everything will be healed. Everything will be reconciled. You will live in joy with him and one another forever and ever. Beloved, your redemption is drawing near. This leads us to the third question. If that's true, what kind of life should we live? And Christ offered us three answers to this as well. First of all, if you look at verses 34 through 35, he just very simply, lovingly tells us that since your redemption is coming near to you, live your life for the one who is about to redeem you. Don't get caught up in the things of this world. When we were in Hebrews for all that time, we talked about this disease that I called soul drift, where some people just walk away from Christ very quickly. Many of us, we just sort of slowly float away from Jesus. We slowly slip back into the things of the world. And that's what he's saying in verses 34 and 35. Listen, since I am the anchor of your life, since I am the hope of your life, don't go back to the things of the world that I delivered you from. Watch your lives closely. Protect your holiness. Live for the things that are pleasing to me. Because if you do not... If you let yourself slip back into things that produce only death, then the coming of the Son of Man will be to you like a trap. It will come upon you, as he said in another place, like a thief in the night. It will not be a happy moment. You will be shocked because Christ will catch you in your sin. If you're truly in him, you will be saved. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.13 that you'll be saved like someone who is snatched out of a fire. It's like Christ ran into a burning house and took you out and you come out looking like Inspector Clouseau. You know, your head's everywhere, your face is all black. You just barely made it. You barely survived. You will be saved, but you don't want to be saved in that condition. You don't want to be saved as you're rebelling in Jesus Christ. You're rebelling against Jesus Christ. You want to be saved as a person who is seeking Christ. So beloved, since your redemption is drawing near, seek your Redeemer. Seek your joy in Christ and come out of this world. Second thing, look at verse 36. The Lord basically tells us to stay awake in prayer. He tells us to build a life of prayer. We should draw near to Christ every day because every day the redemption of Christ is drawing near to us. We should be in the presence of Christ every day, because every day we come nearer to the time when we will spend our eternity in the presence of Christ. Jesus is saying, as the Bible says elsewhere, that if you live a life of prayer, that what this does for you is it keeps you awake to the purposes and plans and promises of God, as you open up your Bible and read his word and pray about what you're reading and seek by his power to apply it to your life, you get a sight of the world as he would have you see it. And you're able then to walk in the way that he would have you walk. But beloved, when you don't live that kind of life, when you don't directly seek Jesus, you fall asleep to his purposes and plans and he wants you to be awake. So how are you doing? in light of your Redeemer, in light of the fact that your redemption is drawing near, how is your prayer life? Are you spending time with Jesus? Are you listening to him? Are you enjoying him? Are you learning from him? Are you learning to see the world the way he sees the world and act in the world and the way he would have you act in the world? This is his gracious call upon our lives. Come be with me and see in me. Stay awake in prayer. 
Since I, your Redeemer, am drawing near, pursue holiness with a passion and pursue a life of prayer with a passion. As I said last week, beloved, so much of this just comes down to spending time with Christ. We have to put him first in our lives, which means putting him first in our schedules. And if we will do that, then we will be awake to his purposes. We will be awake to his plans. Third thing that he says is really more subtle. It's by, the, by, by implication through the story of the Lord's Supper. And this is mainly in chapter 22. But in chapter 22, as we contemplate what the Lord did there with his disciples, I think the lesson that I draw out of him is that mainly what I ought to do and what you ought to do as believers in Christ is to rest in the finished work of Christ. Since our redemption is drawing near, really the only thing left for us to do is to rest in what Christ has already done. Just as all the things that we have said have been decreed, so our salvation has been decreed. Beloved, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the greatest things of this life have already been completely settled for you in Jesus. All provision has been completely made. He is building a mansion for you that cannot be taken away, that cannot be burned down, that cannot be lost in a stock market crash. He He has prepared joy for you that is unspeakable and right now unknowable and also unending. It's an absolute certainty. So the main thing we ought to do in this life is rest in Christ. Herein lies the key to life. Cease to strive. Rest in Christ. From that state of rest, then of course we pursue holiness. Of course we pray. Of course we spend time with the one who settled everything for us. Of course. Of course. But mainly what we're doing is resting in Jesus Christ. So at the beginning of chapter 22, you'll see there that the Passover now is coming near. And this is a time when the people of Israel were supposed to look back and and commemorate the deliverance of God in their lives. They were supposed to celebrate his heart, celebrate his salvation, and seek his will for their lives. This was supposed to be a great time. But many of the leaders of Israel, rather than looking to the glory of the grace of God, they were actually plotting to kill Jesus Christ. And they recruited one of his closest followers, Judas Iscariot. And they made this crafty plan somehow to trap Jesus in something so that they could put him in prison. But they said, listen, we have to do it when the crowds are not around because they knew that if they arrested Jesus when the people were there, the people would stone them. The people would kill them. So they were murderous, power-hungry people, but they were cowards. Judas agreed to work with them. None of this was of surprise to Jesus. He lived an absolutely prayerful life of dependence upon his father so he knew what was coming. And in faith, he just told his disciples, he said, listen, go into the city and make preparations for the Passover. He told them exactly what to do and they did exactly what Christ told them to do. He sits at the meal with them. He tells them how much he's enjoying this meal because he's been waiting for so long to have that meal with them. And I don't know if many of you remember way back to when we were in Exodus, but there is a place in Exodus where it talks about the elders of Israel going up onto a mountain with Moses, Aaron, the elders of Israel, and it says there that they ate with God. I remember the title of that sermon, actually, because it came right out of the text. It said, and they saw God somehow or other. 
They saw a visible manifestation of the glory of God. This is a sort of prefiguring of the Lord's Supper. And now here the Lord is gathered in this room with his disciples and he has been eagerly anticipating eating it with them. But he tells them now, he said, listen, this isn't going to happen again until I return in my kingdom. Until everything I've just told you has come to pass, I won't be here to eat with you again. He took great joy in that. And then he did what you all know that he did. He took a loaf of bread. He broke that bread, gave thanks to God. He passed it out to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. They had no idea what he was talking about. Then he took the cup and he passed the cup to them and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant. They had no idea what he was talking about, but he was radically shaping their eternities at that very moment. He was giving them symbols of remembrance of things he was about to do that would secure the eternal future of everybody who believed in him. So what's this new covenant that Jesus is talking about? Well, probably most of you know this, but I'd like for us to turn to Jeremiah 31. So please, in your Bibles, go to Jeremiah chapter 31. And I want to read with you verses 31 through 34 and then make a few more comments and then I will, I will pray. Hundreds of years before Christ ever walked this earth, Jeremiah wrote these words. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a covenant, a new covenant, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand out of the, and brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And now here we come to the new covenant. And notice who's in control of this covenant. Notice who's doing the work. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. And another prophecy in Zechariah, I believe it's in, the Lord said, I will remove their sin in a single day. In a single moment, I will remove all of their sin. Piles and piles and piles of debt that can't be imagined removed in a heartbeat when Christ would break his body and spill his blood. Oh, beloved, this promise had been made centuries before Jesus walked the earth and it was about to be fulfilled in his life. And though he knew what he was about to suffer, Though he knew it in a, in a great depth, he also rejoiced with a great rejoicing because he knew that when he was finished with the suffering, it was going to be finished and our redemption would be as certain as all of the other things that Jesus decreed. In his heart still, I feel is the hope of this word, your redemption is drawing near and your redemption is sealed by the blood of my body. You may remember that Moses sealed the blood of the first covenant with that of the, the he, he sealed the terms of the first covenant with the blood of bulls and goats. Jesus sealed the terms of the second covenant with his infinitely powerful blood. And beloved, that's a blood that cannot be reversed. That's a promise that cannot be undone. If you are in Christ, the hope that is over your life is this. Your redemption is drawing near. Now Christ did go on here at the end of this conversation to say to his 
followers, which I think would have been really hard to say. After all they had been through, he looked at them and said, check it out, one of you is going to turn your back on me. One of you is going to betray me. So they all start talking, and Judas obviously talking hypocritically about which one of them it's going to be. And somehow, this morphs into a conversation about which of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? It's like, are you going to betray him? Are you going to betray him? Wait a second. Uh, While we're talking about this, I just want you to know I'm the man. I'm the bomb. I'm going to be greatest in the kingdom. No, I'm going to be greatest in the kingdom. No, I'm going to be greatest in the kingdom. It's silliness. Christ in his mercy comes to them and he says, listen, stop. We've talked about this before and I'm going to tell you again what I told you. We don't live like that in our family. We don't strive for power the way the world strives for power. We don't seek position the way the world seeks position. When you come to a restaurant, if you sit down at the table, are you greater than the one who serves you? Of course you're greater than the one who serves you. But Jesus said, I have come as one who serves. I haven't come as the one sitting at the table. And I am about to demonstrate to you the ultimate act of submissive service. I'm about to lay down my life for you. So I want you to live like that. I want you to lay it all down and rest in my finished work. I've told you what's going to come. I've made great promises to you. Now here's how I want you to live. Pursue holiness Be people of prayer, rest in my finished work. Let that guide your life. Pursue holiness. Beloved, how are you doing? How are you doing? Christ is calling upon you today to pursue holiness in your life because your redemption is drawing near. Be people of prayer. Beloved, how are you doing? Are you calling upon your Savior day by day? Are you taking your burdens to the Lord? Are you letting him lift your burdens? Are you letting him teach you? Are you letting him fill your heart with the glory of hope? Come to your Savior and rest in him. Rest in him. Rest in him. Trust in the finished work of Christ. Let's pray now and ask him to help us with that. Lord, I thank you for drawing us a picture of the world that we are going to live in until you come again. I thank you that you're a God who tells us the truth. It can't necessarily be easy, Lord, even for you to tell us that there's going to be war, there's going to be natural disaster, there's going to be terrors from heaven, there's going to be persecution. Lord, these things are not good. They're not pleasing to you at one level. They're not fun. But you're a God of truth, and so you have in love told us the truth, and I thank you for that. I thank you for helping to shape our expectations properly as to what is to come. I also thank you for making us stunning promises that cannot be broken. I thank you for promising to be there with us when we're facing persecution, that you'll tell us what to say, that we don't have to write out notes, we don't have to plan. The Holy Spirit who's living in us will work through us in the heat of the moment. I'm so grateful, Jesus, that we don't have to face the powers by our own power, but by your power. Thank you. Thank you for the promise that our hair will not, not a hair of our head will perish, but that we will live in you forever, that death will not have the final word. Thank you so much for that, Lord. Thank you for the stunning, life-shaping promise that our redemption is drawing near in you. Oh God, how I thank you for these things. And I pray now that by the Spirit that you would help us to live as though they are true because they are true. I pray that now by the Spirit you would begin to work in our hearts, that you would convict us, Lord, that you would bring things to mind, situations to mind, behaviors to mind that need to change if we're to enter deeper into the joy that you have for us. I pray that you would teach us how to be people of prayer, Lord. I pray that by your Spirit you would draw us into the secret places even today. 
even right now, right this moment, that decisions would be made in this room to lay down plans in order to be with Jesus. And I pray, Father, that above all things that you would teach us the joy of resting in Christ. Teach us how, Lord. It all makes sense in our minds. But living life day by day, it's hard sometimes to know how to just relax in the finished work of Jesus. So please come and help us now. Lord, as we rise and sing to you, I pray that you would speak to us by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.